I'm going to continue with uh, our, our Matthew series. Um, I'm not sure where I'm going to go with it. I'm not sure I'm going to take it to its conclusion if there's going to be something else that, that I want to share in the, in the coming weeks. And, and I've tried to be sensitive, too. I've asked the elders if there's anything specific that they want me to walk through or they want me to, to speak on and preach through. I would love uh, to do that as well. But we're going to continue in Matthew 22. And we spent a little bit of time here now, uh, but we're going to jump right back into it. And if you remember... The events that are taking place now in the book of Matthew are during what we call Passion Week. This is the week that began with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to the shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is the week that ends with the crucifixion and then ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We talked a few weeks ago now about the fact that during this week there's a few key things that are happening. First, you see conflict. You see the conflict really ramping up. And what we're looking at today falls into that category of conflict. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, they continue to try to trick Jesus. They continue to try to trap Jesus. And Scripture comes out and and puts it very bluntly that they're now looking for a way that they can kill him. They're looking for a permanent solution to get rid of him. It's also a time of revelation. As you read through these chapters, Jesus coming up here in the next couple chapters, Jesus gives a little bit of a look at what's ahead, what's coming, and gives more of a uh, specific look at who he is and the reason that he came. And then also in each interaction, you have this third thing, and that's core truth. Jesus is getting right down to this is what you have to know. All of these interactions are, are incredibly Uh, intentional, are incredibly strategic as Jesus is preparing the disciples and those who would follow him after his resurrection to plant and grow and build God's church, the plan from the beginning. And so this falls right uh, right into that category of both conflict and then core truth. In fact, this is about as core truth as you can possibly get. This is kind of the, the one big thing. When my wife was in labor with Olivia. Olivia is our, you know, Olivia's our st- stubborn one. Um, she's our spunky. What's spunky? I don't want to say anything mean. She's a wonderful girl, and I love her to death. Spunky, spirited, um, energetic. That's our, that's our little Olivia. And really, the, the labor and delivery of Liv should have clued us in to what, we were, what was ahead for us. Uh, Aaron gave birth to the first three of our children all uh, naturally and with no drugs. She's nuts. I was popping aspirin like you wouldn't believe with all three of them. But with Olivia, it began to stretch out. And it began to go on and on and on and on and, and on and on. And my sweet little wife, if you know her, kind of quiet. There was a point where she was having a contraction and she asked why I wasn't rubbing her back. And so I rubbed her back and then the contraction went away and the next one came up. And I kid you not, I touched her back and she went, don't touch me. I mean, it was to that point where I, as a husband, you're like, I, I don't know what to do. And she actually asked for drugs at that point, which again, tells you kind of the, the, the scope of the pain that she was in. And husbands, you watch your wife give birth, you know that's a helpless feeling. There's, there's really not a lot you can do. You know, and, and you can keep saying, oh, I wish it was me, but we're lying. Not one of us does. <laughs> but I remember the doctor saying over and over and over, 
She's right there. If she would just, I think she had to twist a tiny bit. There was one thing, one thing that was keeping the whole thing from progressing. We knew the end result that we wanted. We wanted a baby. We wanted to hold the baby. But there was one thing that was keeping that from happening. There was one thing that had stalled the process. And there was one thing that was resulting in a tremendous amount of pain. I think as we get to our passage today, I talk to a lot of Christians that feel stalled in their spiritual growth. I talk to a lot of Christians that, well, I go to church, I tithe, I read the Bible, I do all those things that a Christian is supposed to do. But I just, I I don't feel like I'm growing. I don't feel like God's close. I don't feel, they're, they're just not, there's not that relationship. There's not that heart that is madly and deeply in love with God. And Jesus reveals for us today the one thing. That if we do this, the rest of the things will work themselves out. If we do this, then the process will work itself out. We will see growth. We will see not only growth in our own personal lives, but as a church as well. I think the church has been stuck forever. That if the church will do this as well, you'll see the kingdom continue to grow. The Pharisees had just had two run-ins with Jesus. They had first gone to him trying to trap him, trying to trick him again with a couple questions about taxes. Thinking, you know what, if we can get him to say the wrong thing, then we can get the Romans to go after him. You know, if he stands up and says, oh, taxes aren't important, you shouldn't be paying your taxes, then the Romans are going to take care of business and we won't have to worry about Jesus anymore. Then they sent a group of men called the Sadducees to him. Now, the Sadducees were uh, what we would call intellectuals today. They were what we would call academics today. These were deeply religious men that frankly thought they were smarter than everyone else and thought they had it all figured out. And the Sadducees were introducing a new theology and a new thought process that said, okay, we believe there's a God, but there can't possibly be anything else beyond what we see here, all right? As in, there's no afterlife. There's no future. Once we're done here, once these things that we see in front of us here are done, we're just, we're just done. And so the Sadducees come, and they ask Jesus a question about the afterlife. And I love his response because He's not dismissive of them, but he's not far away from being dismissive of them either. He wastes no time with them. He goes right to the root of it, and he says, look, that question shows you don't know the scriptures, first of all. You don't know what God is actually saying. And then second, he says, you don't know God. You don't know God's word, and you don't know God himself to think that he's not capable of providing something more than what you see here. He fielded their questions and he answered them with such authority that scripture says these intellectuals, these deep thinkers, these learned men were literally speechless. I had a buddy of mine that was ordained years ago uh, back in our district in New York. He was ordained eventually. There were some hiccups along the way. But during his oral interview, in the Christian Missionary Alliance, you have to do a written interview, which takes anywhere between, I don't know about any more, I'm sure it was way harder when I took it, Um, between eight and I think the one guy was in there 15 hours the year that I took it. 
um, for the written exam. And then depending on how your written exam goes, your oral exam can be anywhere from a half hour to a long time. If you've kind of messed up some things there in the written exam, they're going to grill you pretty good. They want to make sure that if you're ordained in the Christian Mission Alliance, that you know God's word and that you're in line with the theology and the doctrine of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And so this guy went in, and there was one point, I don't remember what it was. The Alliance does allow some freedom for interpretation in some, in some areas. And there was one area where he knew that his belief was a little bit different than the guys that were interviewing him. And he was getting frustrated because they kept saying, well, can you support that biblically? Can you su-, which is kind of important if you want to be a pastor. Can you support that biblically? And he just, his mind went blank, he said. He just couldn't remember the verses. He knew what he believed, and he knew it was in the Bible, but he couldn't remember where they were. And so he finally became so frustrated that he looked at these men and said, can you support your position scripturally? That's not a, that's not a good idea. Um, these men that you're trying to be ordained through, it's not really, I mean, that's not something that I think I would have ever done. But there was one pastor an older gentleman that didn't even look up from the table with his head down began to rattle off verse after verse after verse after verse after verse for about 10 minutes. And my buddy just said, I have never been more humbled in my life. And he said he was absolutely speechless. Why? Because that man had answered with complete authority. That's what you see here with Jesus. As they're trying to trick him, as they're trying to, well, what do you think about this? Well, you tell me what you think about this idea. They're trying to trap him and trick him. And Jesus continues to answer with complete and total authority to the point where he renders. If you've ever had a conversation, maybe you think of yourself as an academic here today. But if you've ever had a conversation with an academic, they're never speechless. Jesus spoke with that authority that he rendered these men speechless. And so they send the next group. And the next group, uh, we're told, are are teachers of the law or what in that day would have been lawyers. So now we're getting serious. And picking it up in verse 34, here's the conversation. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Do you remember a few months ago we saw a similar phrase earlier in Matthew? Do you remember? Where Jesus said all the law and the prophets hang on this. Remember what it was? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so that, we said at the time, we kind of did this a little backwards, but that's the order it came in the book of Matthew. That is the expression of this. Love God, love people, known as the great commandment. Love God, love people. The expression of that is that you are going to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But Jesus says here, all of the law, all of the prophets, hang on those. And again, in that day, when he said that, that would have meant all of the scripture. Everything that we have, everything that God has given to us, hangs on that. Love God and love people. Verse 
the Pharisees, we've talked about before, these were men that had taken the law of God, taken what God had given to the people of Israel for their benefit and to enhance relationship. And they'd taken it and they'd created over 600 different laws that the people of Israel had to follow if they wanted to be close to God. They had to follow if they wanted to have a relationship with God. So again, these, these men had taken what was meant for the good of Israel and they turned it into a burden that the people simply could not stand up underneath. And they would debate which law was more important. So even among different groups of Pharisees, you would have some Pharisees that said, well, these are the most important ones. Make sure you do these. And others would say, no, it's these ones. Make sure you do these. Because there was a belief among the Pharisees that they were even sharing with the people that if you did some of the bigger ones, as long as you took care of the bigger ones, God would overlook some of the little ones. You know, you could ignore some of those things. I remember when our daughter Catherine was really little, maybe four, I remember sending her in to clean her room, which we had to do often, um, which we still have to do often with her. But I remember sending her in and saying, go clean your room, honey. And I went in about a half hour later, she's sitting on the floor playing, and her room looks exactly the way it looked when I told her to go in and clean it, with one exception. I said, Kate, you didn't clean your room. She said, but I made my bed. In her mind, she did one important thing, and so that exempted her from all of the other stuff. That's kind of how the Pharisees worked here. Said, well, maybe, maybe I, I didn't do that one, but I kept these ones, the big ones. And so again, they wanted Jesus to weigh in on it, looking for a way to trap them, or to trap him, to trip him up. Because if he showed in his answer that he didn't have an understanding of the law, then he would be exposed as a phony, as a teacher that really wasn't worth following. And in his answer, Jesus gives us that core truth. He gives us the heart of God, the heart of the gospel, he says, love God. That's the most important. That's where it starts. Love God and love people. That's right there with it. And I really think for us as Christians, if that was our mindset, if we looked at every circumstance and every situation and we thought, what is it in this? How is it that I can better love God and I can better love people. I think the reputation that Christians have in today's day and age would be vastly different than it is. I think the reputation of the church in today's day and age would be vastly different than it is. And I really think people would flock to the church trying to figure out what it is that we have that others don't. But Jesus says, love God, love people. And if you take the, the Ten Commandments that God gave to the nation of Israel and you boil them down, they all fall into love God or love people. If you love God, you're not going to have any other gods before him. If you love God, you're going to take advantage of that Sabbath. You're going to honor that Sabbath where you get a chance to reconnect and work on that relationship with him. If you love people, I think it's common sense. If you love people, you're not going to cheat on your spouse with someone else's spouse. You're not going to lie. You're not going to steal. You're certainly not going to murder. If you do these things, you've got all of the commandments covered. Love God first, then love your neighbor as yourself. So let's take a look at these two commands that Jesus gives. Love God. This is where 
we start. And I really think that for some people, it would be easier if Jesus had said, well, these are the greatest commandments. Go to church, read your Bible, make sure you give at least every once in a while. Because for us, I think if we can have, well, this, these are the concrete goals, and I can check a box next to it, and I did those things. Loving God is a, a little different. All right, all those things that you can check the boxes with are a product of loving God. Certainly, your actions flow from that. But Jesus says the most important thing is to love God. This is to be the center of everything that we do, everything that we are. Our lives are to be marked first and foremost by a deep relationship with our Creator. And it's a love that will affect every aspect of our lives, every other relationship that we have. C.S. Lewis once said, When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. It begins with loving God. I don't know if you're aware of the fact that it is opening weekend of the football season. NFL football. I, who cares about college? All you Ohio State fans, I don't know. NFL, I love watching NFL football, even as unwatchable as my team has been for many, many years now. But I remember back when my oldest was little, and I remember it was opening weekend, and I got home from church, and I put on my jammy pants, and I sat on the couch, and I turned the game on. And Ethan was going through this phase. He was probably two, right around there. He was going through this wonderful phase that I wish he was still in where he would tell us he loved us every 10 seconds. I mean, he just, he loved to say, I love you, and to hear it back to him. And I remember trying to watch the game, and he walked through the room, he said, Daddy, I love you. You know, I'm watching, I'm, yeah, I love you too. And then I remember he came and he sat right next to me on the couch. Daddy, I love you. Yeah, buddy, you know, not even looking at him. Yeah, I love you too, kid. And next, he gets up. And he turns around, he straddles me, and he puts his hands on either side of my face, gives me a huge, nasty, wet kiss, says, Daddy, I love you. And I was like, buddy, I, I love you too. You know who else loves you? Mommy loves you. Why don't you go tell Mommy how much you love her? And I just remember after he walked out, I remember thinking, that was terrible parenting. Like, what did that really communicate to my son? I said I loved him. I said it multiple times. But I was showing that what was most important to me in that moment was the game that I was watching, which we all know probably was a loss anyways, and I probably ended up angry at the end of it. I was telling him that I loved him, but my actions were not showing that love because I was distracted by what I wanted. Is my relationship with Ethan more important than football? Of course. But sometimes I didn't show it, and I still don't. I think so many of us have allowed ourselves to be distracted by other things that we can no longer say that love truly defines our relationship with God. We can no longer say that, that love is truly our first and greatest priority, that above all else, above all things, we love God. We can't convince ourselves that, that we love him. We can't convince ourselves that we're doing okay in this area. 
and then kind of be annoyed with him when he wants our time, or annoyed with him when he wants us to, to actively do something that requires service, that requires putting aside some of our own wants and our own needs to follow. Love for God is to consume us. And Jesus says here, this is the way that we're to love. We're to love God with all of our heart, he says. Now, again, in those days, the heart was the center of your emotions. The heart was where all of your, your emotions sprung from. And so we're to love God emotionally. You can't separate your emotions from this whole process. I know people that go to either extreme. There's people that only love God emotionally, and there's others that do the last thing, the mind part, where they only, well, I can figure things out, and I can love God intellectually. My emotions have nothing to do with it. No, Jesus says love God first with all of your hearts. There is to be an emotional response. As a kid, I used to be incredibly embarrassed because almost every Sunday, my mom would start crying during the singing. I don't know if she still does because I don't look anymore. But I just remember thinking, what is wrong with this lady? That's love on an emotional level. As she would sing some of those old hymns, especially with that deep uh, theological truth in those hymns, it would strike her again who God was and who God had created her to be and the relationship that he had called her into and the sacrifice that he had made for her. When is the last time that thinking about those things and dwelling on your relationship with God has moved you emotionally? We are to love God with all of our hearts. We are to love God with all of our soul. The soul is who we are. The soul is the, the inside. The soul is the core of our being. When you strip everything else away, that's what we're left with. And so Jesus is saying we're to love God on a level that penetrates far deeper than just our emotions. From the very core, the very center of who we are. Literally the deepest depths of our being. And then we're to love God with all of our mind. Again, loving God is not just an emotional thing. There's a place for faith, absolutely. There are some things that we will not understand because God is bigger than us and God's ways are higher than our ways. But I also don't believe there's some people that fall on the other side where they're like, well, you can't understand anything. No, I think God has given us enough where intellectually we can make that decision, okay, yeah, there must be a God. And so we're to love him not just with our emotion and not just with our soul, but we're to be convinced in our minds that what he says is true, that who he says he is, is true. And so that greatest commandment in all of Scripture is to love God with everything that we have, sold out completely, with our heart, with our soul, with our mind. And then, if that's happening in our lives, if that is the reality in our lives, this next one can't, I'm going to use too many negatives, can't not happen. That's too many negatives. But this next one is going to happen. How about that? We'll go positive. If you truly love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind, you will put people first. You will understand that each and every person is created in the image of God. And regardless of what they look like, regardless of what they've done to us, regardless of where our emotions get 
a little messed up in a relationship with them, you will understand that God created them, and because God created them, because God loves them, we are to love them as well. And we are to do those things that we talked about a few months ago. We are to do unto others as we would have them do to us. Our love for God at its basest level is shown in the way that we love people. And so I see it all the time. (laughs) If you're a Christian that doesn't love people, you don't love God. And that's not me. I'm not trying to be mean. That's the Bible. My buddy posted something on Facebook the other day. He's a pastor in uh, Nyack where I went to college. He and I have known each other since we were just little kids. But he posted a story of going to the local grocery store. And there was a lady who had gotten in line and forgotten something. And so she put everything off the belt, back in her cart, went to grab the one thing, then came back. The lady behind her had already loaded up all her stuff and was starting to be checked out. She pushed all that lady's stuff back and started putting her stuff back on the belt. And the lady obviously said something. And this lady got nasty, screaming and cussing and saying, I was here first. And by the time my buddy got up to the line, the cashier, bless her heart, was in tears. And he talked to the cashier, and he tried to, you know, hey, it's all right. You did, a, you did a great job. And the cashier said, did you see her hat? And my buddy hadn't seen it. She was wearing a hat, not make America great again, all right? She was wearing a hat that said, I love Jesus. And my buddy just said, you know, I'm a pastor, and on behalf of Christians everywhere, I am so sorry. That's not what we're like. But I'm not sure I agree with him. It's what a lot of us are like. But you cannot love God truly if you don't love people by the way you treat them. I'm sure if you ask that lady, she'd say, oh, I love people. That's, that's not what it looked like to people. And that's kind of important. The Bible says in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you, God loved you enough to pursue you. God loved you enough to send his son to die on the cross for you. As he loved you, love others with that sacrificial love. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You've heard me say it before. There are a lot of ways God could have gone with that. Whatever interpretation of the Bible you read or whatever version of the Bible you read, that's how they'll know you're my disciples. How you dress when you go to church, that's how they'll know. No, they will know you're my disciples by the way that you love other people. That is the mark of a Christian. And in a world where Christians are looked at, honestly, we're looked at as judgmental. We're looked at as mean in a lot of cases. I think in so many cases, look, do we have a moral standard that we have to hold to? Absolutely. But I think we forget the basic command of Scripture that we are to love other people. We get on our, our moral high horses when it comes to things like uh, abortion and homosexuality and addiction and, and some of those different things, which are absolutely all addressed by Scripture, which are absolutely something that we are to be concrete on our beliefs in. But because of that, we think, you know what, if you don't agree with me on that, I can treat you however I want. I can make you feel terrible and little and less than important. When the basic command of Scripture is not love God and be right. 
It's love God and love people. And honestly, there's times in my own life where I'm embarrassed at the way that I fall short in that. And there's times in my life as a pastor that I talk to people and I'm embarrassed with the way the church has fallen short of that. We're to love people. The reputation of God's kingdom has suffered because of Christians that say they love God and treat people like dirt. Why? Why are we to love others? The first thing, and there's a couple things here that these ought to be enough, but I think there's three different reasons. But the first one is because God does. Again, that ought to be enough for us. My parents love my wife. Now, she happens to be easy to love. But you know what? I can tell you this with complete confidence. If she was a terrible person, if she was just hard to get along with, negative all the time, and saying mean things to people, my parents would still love my wife. Do you know why? Because my parents love me, and I love my wife. Their love for her is not based on what she does or who even who she is when she's with them. Their love for her is, well, I mean, they do like her now. Like, that's grown over the years, too. But their love for her is because they love their son, and their son loves his wife. And so there's absolutely nothing she could do that would ever change that. God loves his creation, each and every one of them. That person that you can't stand is deeply and completely loved by God. 1 John 4, 9 through 11 says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. It's not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, he lays it out. He says, look, this is how much God loved you. These are the things that God did for you. Since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. The entire story of Scripture, the entire Bible, is a love story of a God passionately pursuing his creation. And I think if we understand this, if we understand the fact that God loves each person with the same love that he has for us, it ought to change the way that we treat them. Why should we love others? Because God does. Why should we love others? Because it reflects God's love. This world can't see God apart from what they see in us. That's the way that God designed for his kingdom to grow, was for those that love him, for those that are his children, to love others in a way that would point people to him, that would reflect his love to others. 1 John 4 continues with verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love has been brought to full expression through us. I have never preached a sermon on just that verse, and I really need to at some point, because that is mind-boggling. God's love is brought to full expression. Not when we love the people that love us. Not even when we love God back. It's brought to full expression when we love others. God's love is brought to full expression when we love people. And in case you need one more thing 
The third reason why should we love? Because God says so. You know, every parent in here knows there are appropriate times to just say, because I said. Probably we say it too much, but God can. God commands it. Why should we love other people? Because God said so. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a command. And again, not only is it a command, but it made the top two here. Love God, love others. If you're a Christian, there's no reason and there's no excuse not to love. Whatever's holding us back, whatever we're holding on to that's keeping us from loving the unlovable people in our lives, we need to give that to God. We need to trust that when God tells us to love others, that he's got a plan, that he'll protect us, he'll watch over us, and he will change people's hearts. Not all the time, not every relationship, but that doesn't let us off the hook. Loving others is a command. Love God, love people. All of the scriptures hang on these. All of the scriptures are built on these. The way that Jesus says it, the words that are used, the words that are recorded for us literally mean this is the foundation. This is what everything else is built on. Love God. Spend time with him. Spend time in prayer with him. Be committed to his church. Be committed to obeying his commands. Live right. And then love people. Who are you serving in your life? When's the last time you truly put someone, not one of your children or your husband or your wife, although those are very important to do as well, but when's the last time you truly put someone else's needs first? When's the last time you prayed for that person that you would call your enemy? When's the last time you cared for someone's physical needs? We're to love people. That's it. That's the Bible in a nutshell. That's the truth boiled down to its essence. And for some that feel like we're stuck in our relationship with God, for some that feel like we're not growing or feel like God's distant or, and we want to know why, this is probably where we need to start. Love God and love people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the simplicity which with you give us some of these commands. You know that we're a people that try, uh, at times, try too hard uh, to figure things out or get to the point where we're so wrapped up in how do I do this, what do I need to do that we fail to do anything. And so Jesus gives us the core of the gospel as simply as it possibly can be put. Love God and love others. Lord, in my own life, I pray that you would help me to do this better. And Lord, for this church, today, next week, as they continue to move forward, may this be a church that loves you passionately. With all of its heart and with all of its soul and with all of its mind. And then truly loves others. That it would be a church that's making a huge impact on the community that's making a huge impact as each one goes out from here in the places that they work, in the places they go to school. But I pray that through this core truth, you would transform lives and you would transform this ministry. And that we would be a place that loves God and loves others. In Christ's name.